This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic. This is Matt Pegas. And we are, we are back together after an episode where uh, Matt was away um, right. performing undisclosed uh, <laughs> operations yeah. in uh, all sorts of uh, combat zones. <laughs> but uh, Matt, Matt is back now for episode 34, an episode that is near and dear to our hearts. Yep, back um, uh, back after not not really a break, but you know a little bit of a summer lull. But back back and ready to go, and um, just finished. So this, yeah, j- just finished reading. Is, go, go on, yeah. On um, I in the promotion, I tentatively titled it uh, on the consolation of podcasting. And that is a reference to the novel or philosophical track by Bothius on the Consolation of Philosophy, which is the favorite book of Ignatius J. Riley, yeah, who I is think, the main character of Confederacy of Dunces. And I think we're going to have to go. Uh, first of all, I love the title on the Consolation of Podcasting. <laughs> uh, but secondly, uh, a Confederacy of Shit Posters was already taken as the name of a geo. Uh, Penichetti essay that we, I think we talked about with Gio. That's right. Um, yes. So that's a great, that would have been a great title too, but we have uh, perhaps an even better title um, referencing the. It's almost, a more esoteric title. More esoteric and, and funnier perhaps. Um, but yeah, no. Um, so on the Confederacy of Dunces, this is a novel that I have been telling Matt about since, uh, honestly, since we, we met. Right. Uh, uh, because... I think it came up on our first Zoom uh, because I'll let you say it. But basically, as a reference point with regard to your novel. Yeah. Yeah. So my novel, Nutcranker, shares a lot of uh, thematic and stylistic elements with Confederacy of Dunces. I've often described it as modern day Confederacy of Dunces. So uh, it's, it's safe to say that I am a, a dunce head. Mm. I, I am a fan of dunces. And so I've been proselytizing dunces uh, across the board. And uh, that includes to Matt from the yeah. very beginning of the pod. And so in the, we always said like, we'll eventually do an episode on Confederacy of Dunces. And uh, it is the summer. We are both coming off of vacations here and a um, little bit of downtime. So uh, it's uh, it's dunce time. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, it's good um, to, 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 I think, for us to do episodes like this. So saying you, Dan, where we, you know, because we are a literature podcast and we love having guests on, but to, to kind of come back sometimes and talk about 
books, which are and should be our bread and butter, uh, is is always a is always a comfort. And uh, yeah, no, I um had yeah, to go back. I I did learn about a Confederacy of Dunces from you, which is striking to me because I consider myself, you know, a liter literate, literary, and educated individual. But uh, somehow this book had kind of slipped past my radar. And you know, most striking of all is I one of my prominent early college courses that made me want to become an English major actually. Uh, was a course on American Southern literature. And somehow this book was not on the curriculum. I don't think it came up. Uh, we read Walker Percy, who is the novelist who more or less discovered Tool, John Kennedy Tool, the, the writer of A Confederacy of Dunces, posthumously. And we read a lot of Flannery O'Connor and Faulkner. And I mean, I, I consider myself, you know, pretty well read in the canon of Southern literature. And somehow... A Confederacy of Dunces had just, the title wasn't even familiar to me. And now, but since you told me about it, I've seen it come up quite a bit. Um, it's came, it came up in our conversation, but I also, and again, there's that Gio Panicetti essay and others on sort of frog Twitter, dissident right Twitter reference it. Uh, it is. And we discussed it with Gio. We discussed it with Gio. We've discussed it on, I think, several of our podcast, usually with regard to Nutcracker, but like it comes up all the time. I'm glad I finally read it. I'm glad I kind of filled that, 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 that gap. Um, and not to anticipate too much any, you know, some of our outlines today, but basically I think it, as you've said, Dan, you were, you were right. It's a very prescient novel, very uh, speaks very much to the moment that we're in now, despite it having been written in, it was written what in the sixties or seventies, right? Early 60s, which yeah, is really yeah. striking. He, um, God, he killed himself. I mean, we're, we're jumping ahead here. It's okay. Uh, that we'll you're good to get the autobiographical, you're good to get the biographical but, details down. Yeah. Yeah. He killed himself in 69. Jesus. And yeah. this, well, this was published uh, much later. Much in 1980, of, I believe. Yeah. In the 80s. But yeah, uh, yeah early 80s. But um, it was probably written like, God, like mid sixties, early sixties. I mean, this yeah. is not this is not an episode on the literary history of John Kennedy Tool. That uh, that is actually an episode that uh, I uh, uh, will be doing for uh, Art of Darkness with right. Evan Kautzman and Brad, right. Brad Kelly, and so I'm uh, very much looking forward to that. But uh, yeah, we're somewhat focused on uh, John Kennedy Tool, but we're more focused here on Confederacy of Dunces, the novel. And yeah, this came out in the mid to early 60s. And uh, you would think way before any of the, you know, current culture war flashpoints that uh, kind of consume us today. But uh, you would be wrong if you thought that. Because as you, I'm sure you'll agree, Matt, as you're reading through Confederacy of Dunces, a lot of these same issues, these same tensions are, um, you know, brought to vivid life. Uh, uh, absolutely. And I mean, I think my primary impression was basically that I, you know, I assumed because obviously I respect you as a reader, Dan, I assumed you were correct in saying that the novel was prescient and that it was funny and that it was similar to your novel. 
but I would on all counts, I was kind of struck. I was it's like, wow, uh, really, really on the really on the mark, really on the nose. And um, I don't know if he said this a lot. Obviously, a lot of our listeners are familiar, but uh, it is a comedic novel, first and foremost. It's um, satiric and very just biting, sort of on the nose, very bold. And so, you know, there's there's things out in it that are still uh, shocking is a strong word, but are still like eyebrow raising. Um, you see my cat in the background here. <laughs> um, it's 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 so on the nose and some of the stereotypes that it deals in. And also, frankly, the frank way it deals with sexuality, um, to me, read very, very modernly. In a, in a positive, obviously on dissident right Twitter, we're used to thinking of modernity in a bad way. In this case, I mean, it reads in a very modern, I mean, that in a positive way, like Wellbeck yeah. or something. It's so, it's very honest and, and sharp yeah, in yeah. what it delves in. I, I, I was really struck by just how sharp and just how sometimes crass and frank um, topics, yeah. that, topics yeah, like because... race, some certain racial stuff, which we'll get into, but definitely like sexuality. Um, and, and most of all, the main character of Ignatius J. Riley as a sort of coping quasi incel um, reactionary, just how similar in his in in his politics and some of the sort of comedic dramatic irony uh elements of his politics how how, how i mean that's what's most striking of all is how similar that is to characters that we as denizens of the online right come across and perhaps yeah are <laughs> every day yeah yeah no i mean like ignatius is um you know, perhaps a too familiar figure for some of us. <laughs> that's, uh, that's definitely, you know, uh, true. But in addition to that, like the kind of the things that we think of, like, okay, so um, what, what's a trope today that like, is, so a, a trope that we're all familiar with is the trope of the awful, the affluent female white liberal. And uh, we, we all know this, uh, this woman to be someone who uh, is kind of uh, sticking her nose in other people's business while enjoying great comfort and wealth and like generally just kind of having no skin in the game, but messing stuff up for other people who are right. trying to get by. And this character is, you know, this dynamic is exemplified by the character of Mrs. Levy who is trying to um, re rehabilitate or, or, or something. This, uh, this older Mrs. Levy is the wife of a factory owner and she is trying, she is basically forcing her husband to continue to employ this uh, senile old woman because the senile old woman named Miss Trixie, because she is convinced that uh, Miss Trixie without work had will will have no meaning and so this yeah. kind of both hits upon it hits upon miss mrs <clears throat> levy is being doing that awful thing where she is you know kind of championing causes that are you know kind of like uh side projects for her but have very real world ramifications yeah, for yeah. everyone else have to work with this senile woman and uh this um 
this also has the kind of uh, trappings of the sort of neo, this is before neoliberalism, but nevertheless, this idea that like you have to find meaning through work. So she, yeah. she wants to yeah. make Miss Trixie work. And the, the hilarious part, the, the part that's so funny is Miss Trixie doesn't want to work. She keeps saying like, can you just let me retire? And Mrs. Levy is like, no, no, you need to work to find meaning and this and that. And so this is like, keep in mind, this was the early 60s. This was written. Yeah. In, and it's foreshadowing all of the like, you know, you find your meaning through work. Women are liberated through work. Right. And it's, you know, like, admittedly, Miss Trixie is an old woman. She's not like a young woman, but still, I think, you know, there's no, and stark you're right, parallels but- here. Yeah, there certainly are. And you, you use it neoliberal in an interesting sense. I remember this debate at some point, like, what do we mean? We mean neoliberal. Uh, I, I think the, uh, this example of Mrs. Levy or Levi, yeah, I guess Levy in, in the book is, um, is a good, good, good uh, sort of example of, of one sense of neoliberal, where it's, it's a woman with progressive notions of wanting to better the world uh through you know liberal means but she's you know she's married she's part of a wealthy you know family she's her husband is basically a business magnate you know she's all of her power all of her the luxury and time she has to put into social projects is enabled by capital and so what you get in that situation i do think a lot of what we say we talk about neoliberalism is this is people who are resigned to the capitalist system because they can't undo the very thing which you know basically renders them who they are and and, and gives them time they're not going to undo that so instead it's this uh you know i don't even necessarily know if it's a square peg into a round hole but it's definitely a sort of you know puzzle so shall we say to sort of conform liberal notions into a capitalistic framework and something like her project with Miss Trixie is, uh, is kind of an example of that par, par excellence. And, that, and then it, on a broad, I mean, in that case, it's kind of just funny in the novel, but if you look at it on a broader scale, it's much more insidious with things like sort of, um, you know, the, the, the fusion of capitalism and feminism or, and, and all that, it has a much more, Absolutely. Negative, negative social effect but it's all it's basically another organ of capital under a socially progressive moral veneer absolutely and but think about how like just now it's be, this is like a cutting edge topic right now the fusion of capitalism and feminism in this neoliberal hybrid that is undermining the family this is something mm-hmm. that you know, maybe, okay, it's like two or three years old, five years old, but like people weren't really talking about the criticizing neoliberalism from a kind of trad perspective. Oh, no, not at all. Really doing this even seven years ago, even 10 years ago. But this, like, this is already laying bare the, the, you know, problem in the early 1960s. Which goes yeah, to no, show it's... you that the problem, I mean, I, I think we've both on this pod, um, you know, kind of come to some sort of consensus that the post-war narrative is basically what has fundamentally deranged our society. Yeah. And um, so this kind of is like proof in the pudding that like, oh, well, you know, the, the problems of today, yeah, they were kind of like planted and brewing 
in the 60s, in the 50s, these problems that concern race, these problems that concern gender, these problems that concern, um, you know. Capital even. Yes, uh, capital. There were the relation with the two. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I had a really very, very, very liberal or not even liberal, I don't know, leftist. Actually, I she was pretty much, if you imagine, if you've read the book, obviously you have, Dan, she, she was basically a Myrna Minkoff-esque um, professor right down at the glasses. And she, she was super liberal. But one thing she always said, we were reading Chaucer and um, her, her whole thing. And she, I don't think she was wrong about this, even though she had a slightly sort of, I don't know, crass Freudian take on it. Uh, was that, you know, wh- whatever li- era of literature you're reading from, like they're just people just like us who have all the same you know, um, they're, they're fixed on the same things. And like, uh, I guess that stuck with me. And I, I, I did think about that while reading Confederacy Dunces. Uh, compared to Chaucer, it's, it's recently, but I was, you know, it's, it's very much like, wow, these characters have the same, you know, they're, they're basically living in the same society. Yes, a slightly earlier version of the society that we're living in now, but nevertheless, a society with a lot of the same pieces and they had a lot of the same thoughts. And, you know, um, censorship of various kinds of self-censorship has always been an issue. I, you know, we could get into this more. Like, is there something to the fact that, you know, Kennedy Toole wrote this, you know, not without a clear sense of how he's going to get published. He never saw it get published. Is that, is it more honest somehow because of that, because he was an outsider? Is it more honest? I think the answer is probably yes. Yeah. We'll get more into that later, but I, you really, it's really striking. It's like, yes, it was a quote unquote more polite era or something, but the, again, it's, the, the striking thing is how, in a positive sense, crass some of the some of these stereotypes and some of these issues are dealt with, and it, yeah, it really did remind me of again that leftist professor the whole her whole shtick about you know you know humans never change right you know um yeah I, I was uh, I was thinking a little bit in those terms just because this this novel this novel felt more honest and straightforward than, than most of the other stuff I've read from that time. Like I'm the biggest like Flannery O'Connor fan. And I know, I know John Kennedy Jewel is also a big Flannery O'Connor fan, but in some ways this felt like it was like more direct. Uh, I I don't even say it's better than Flannery O'Connor, mind you, in some ways, maybe not, you know, this is more of a comedic novel, O'Connor's, you know, high literature, whatever, but like, Again, just that language of like, it's like, this is, this, you know, another thing we'll come back to is like, uh, there's the shit poster thing and the degree to which Ignatius J. Riley kind of feels like a shit poster. Like this is, the stuff that's in Confederacy of Dunces, this feels like what people would be writing about and joking about on Twitter if there was Twitter in the 60s. In a way that no other book, in a way that no other book I've read feels that way. Well, exactly. Because like you have stuff like, so we'll talk about Myrna more later, but like, she ignatius essentially uh, criticizes her for her love of sex but um she seems also incapable uh, at least according to ignatius of like having uh relationships with men having um you know long lasting yeah. uh like she and in that way she is a forerunner of the current issue of uh you know women seeking um sex without relationships and thinking that that will like make them you know happy, oh yeah that no, they can completely. that they can be the same as men that they can you know pursue and not even men can pursue meaningless sex and be satisfied um you know 
I yeah. certainly can vouch for that. <laughs> so, uh, um, right. yeah, it, um, no. And I think a lot of people are, know that the sexuality issue has been going on since at least the seventies, but again, we're talking about the early sixties here. Yeah. And yeah, character of Myrna Minkoff, you know, she is Jewish, which we'll talk about. And it's a very incisive kind of Jewish college educated female stereotype. Uh, so she's not necessarily the norm of society at that time or now, but nevertheless, um, well, now I would kind say of, kind of close to the norm, actually. closer, closer, <laughs> uh, not, not, not to get too into uh, something. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, if not ethnically, then at least in terms of uh, some of these issues. But no, it proves that even in, I, and I do think the year is 1962, by the way, I think someone dated. Okay. I don't think they say the year, but um, there's like a Doris Day movie, which is one of the. The okay, I got, I got you. This goes to see, which I think. Uh, so even in like probably the fifties too, and early sixties, these issues and these perspectives are really burbling up in the universities. Uh, yeah. which, which, which I guess I, it's not that I didn't know that, but to see it so uh, humorously laid out in a novel uh, was, yeah, was something I'd never seen before. Yeah. And so to move on to another trope, the trope of race. So hilariously, Ignatius uh, tries to organize the, see, he works in a, a pants factory and right. in, the, in the pants factory, he works in the office because he's a college educated man. So he's a, he's a clerk, but there's also the factory part of the factory where the factory workers are mostly uh, black. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he, um, he, I mean, it's, it's interesting because like, as we describe Ignatius, we've basically described him as kind of like our guy, but like, that's, it's a little more complicated as we'll get into. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Because he um, he's, you know, he's essentially, and we'll talk about this more later. He's a Christian humanist. He believes in like the dignity of all people. And uh, you know, for, for various reasons, he decides that he needs to organize something he calls the crusade for Moorish dignity. And uh, that is essentially, he's going to lead the black factory workers in an uprising against his bosses in the the office. And I mean, this is hilarious in the novel. It's so funny, but it, um, it also underlies, like, obviously we all know that the civil rights movement was going on in the the sixties. So that, that is, you know, that clearly is not something that he was foreshadowing that was happening. But right. like, it's interesting to see that like the way Ignatius kind of entered this was kind of like, he was bored. He, oh no, no, he, he wanted to do this to show off to Myrna that he could be like the true champion of the blacks. And that, uh, and also one just has the sense that he wanted to get out of doing work. Yes, exactly, exactly. But yeah, yeah. And so like all of this is kind of like, when you think about the social justice agitators of today, why are they doing it? They're doing it to get laid. They're doing it to get out of work. They're doing it because they're bored. And that's the exact yeah. same thing that Ignatius they're doing it for the, doing in for the, the early opti- 1960s. Yeah. In short, for the optics of it, you know, there's this element of like, you know, it's the it's the cool thing to do to be a contrarian in that sense. And yeah, no, um, you could look at Ignatius from a lot of different angles and we will. Uh, yes, he's absolutely, um, you know, someone with a reactionary um, perspective, but, uh, and something that is 
not entirely dissimilar uh, to a, a lot of the types of people we find online today. But at the same time, he's also, um, are you, can you hear me? Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can okay, good. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought. Yeah, he, he's definitely a reactionary, but also the character of Ignatius. The question is like, you know, we said he's our guy, but like, well, is he really our guy? Is he? Yes, he is a reactionary. But what what is he reacting against? And what is he, uh, you know, reacting toward, I suppose? And uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because obviously he's a buffoonish character. He's not a character that you want to say is your guy. I think there's certain recognizable elements that can't be denied. Um, but at core, this is a satirical character. And uh, yeah, as you said, there is kind of a religious thing. Obviously, there's a lot of a lot well, of so religious it, Catholic. But it should be said that he is a monarchist. He he's is, a monarchist. He's yeah. One, so we, we should paint like a real picture of Ignatius's ideology here, just to lay lay it out so people see. Like Ignatius is, you know, he's a Catholic. He's steeped in medieval philosophy. His favorite book is uh, by Bothius called "On the Consolation of Philosophy," which um, highlights the idea that uh, much of life is determined by the wheel of Fortuna. And, uh, you know, life is cyclical and has ups and downs. Yeah, he's very influenced by medieval philosophy and sort of more, I guess, medieval Catholicism. It should be noted, you might call him a trad Catholic, although we never once see him go to church. You know, is he really so Catholic or is this just another way that he is kind of coping or rather not coping with modernity? That's a, that's a, you could, you could, you could ask a lot of questions about that, But, but ostensibly... Yes, he's a he's a a tra- basically a trad calf. But and, crucially, and, would yeah. would our guy organize a crusade for Moorish dignity? Of course not. Probably and, not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so like he is, um, you know, he is not. Um, uh, let's say HBD pills. He's he's uh, clearly yeah. you know he, he's not that. He believes you know like whether it's like a cynical belief or whatever, he does prefer a cynical belief to like get out of work and like, you know, organize some like, you know, but he, he does believe in civil rights. He does believe in um, uh, essentially that, that all, it's not clear if he believes in the blank slate exactly, but he does believe that everyone has inherent dignity as a, you know, a human, as a Christian, basically right. a Christian subject, as a Christian subject to God and the King. And that is kind of like his philosophy. And that, so he, he I, I would say he is a Christian humanist. And yeah, I would say so too. And that gets into something interesting. And I don't even want to comment so much one way or the other on this, besides just to, to point it out. Uh, it gets into a very specific thing about Ignatius, about John Kennedy Toole, uh, about Walker Percy, actually, who discovered John Kennedy told about the city of New Orleans, even, is that, yes, this is the South, but it is a, it's also very Catholic. Catholic. And in that sense, it is, uh, it, uh, people like Tool, people like Walker Percy, I know this from having read some of his work, you know, they they were, you know, they were Southern gentlemen, they were of that, but also they viewed themselves as outsiders to the kind of, the the, the mainstream of this, or not the mainstream, but you know, the, 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 the main ethnic 
well, and social component of the South. Yeah. This applies to Flannery O'Connor as well, um, who is also Catholic. There is that a little bit of like outsiderness to that. And they probably, they were conservative in their values, but also were known to be, and again, really not to comment on this because we don't, but like they were, they were known to be more or less supportive of a lot of the civil rights stuff, at least to, to a large extent. So, yeah, I mean, like, it's not even like, you know, hidden. He, he, Ignatius very vocally criticizes fascists, criticizes nativists. Rednecks, even. Rednecks. He is not aligned with the, uh, what, with what today we would call the Americaner. He is not aligned with them. He looks, he looks down upon them and um, he, you know, but, but he does, you know, and I think there is something admirable if perhaps somewhat misguided, he, um, he, you know, does believe in this kind of uh, Christian notion of inherent dignity. For yeah. And Dan, you, this is kind of, I think a subtler level in the book that a lot of people don't kind of hit on, but kind of you, you mentioned in, in the notes, one of the redeemable sort of things or one of the things that makes him at the end of the day, at least a little bit likable, despite kind of wreaking havoc on everyone's life is that he has that element where he, he ostensibly yeah. is a humanist. He's, he, he's never like put a hard, day's work in in his life he's 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 fat he's all these things but he he's not a misanthrope per se there's um there's a there's a warmth to certain elements of his character exactly yeah and like you know i i don't think we need to get into like what should the appropriate social policy be in america but sure, it, it's it, probably it, better to avoid that <laughs> yeah but um i think you know it's it's definitely redeem it's a redeeming characteristic that ignatius looks at people and he um you know believes that you know everyone is kind of if not um equal in like ability that they you know all have the same inherent worth right and that's like i think that's something that you know even a lot of our guys would co-sign on oh i think so too so if you're I mean, look, I'm not in the position to, to say what you have to or, or don't have to believe. But, you know, it's not just liberal Catholics who believe that. That is part of Catholic social teaching. You don't need to be a total, like, Jesuit uh, liberal uh, to, 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 to... You basically do, I think, have to, to sign on to that as a Catholic and as a Christian. It doesn't have to manifest itself in you leading the Moorish uprising <laughs> factory. But th- I do think there's, there's an element of that. And, and, and it absolutely, um, you know, it is, it is admirable in its way. Uh, and, you know, I think this, not that we need to pivot the conversation too much on this, but I think that the degree to which, you know, you say he's not necessarily one with what we now call the, the Americaner in his time. No, but like, what is the Americaner now? Um, this is a broader sociological conversation that i'm not i don't have the data in front of me to speak on but it's like the you know and i and i was and i grew up catholic so yeah i have some some angle some personal angle on this um you know catholics are technically a minority i guess in the united states or technically a religious mind although are they actually because there's probably more catholics than there are any other one probably plurality right but they I mean, are a plurality you, and that's kind of interesting but it, probably, go on, yeah. probably not if you take into like so combine all the protestant denominations i'm sure the all of the protestant denominations combined constitute the plurality right. 
but no one of them is worse. So it's this funny thing, you know, American Catholicism, American Catholic identity. I mean, there, that is a huge topic, really. Uh, you know, you have, because it is a Protestant country in its founding and, and uh, arguably in the core of its demographic. But yeah, there is this plurality of Catholics. A lot of them are, who I think, who we'd call the Americana in the Midwest. Uh, people like E. Michael Jones talk about that with a sort of German Catholic element throughout the Midwest. So in the South, definitely not. But definitely more of a minority thing in the South, especially yeah. traditionally. So it's, it's, it's a big topic, and I don't want to say anything definitive about it, but it's kind of this interesting thing. People like Walker Percy, people like John Kennedy Tool, and the character of Ignatius, we'll talk about to what extent Ignatius is John Kennedy Tool soon. Um People, people like that, you know, I think, kind of did view themselves as a sort of in a, in a sort of minority Catholic light. But how is that age? I kind of like on the modern dissident right. Uh, I kind of think that that differentiation it's still there, but it's it's very much glossed over. It's it's kind of not viewed as as important. Um, there's not you know about like the Trump coalition or, or definitely like Frog Twitter people like. You know, the, you do get people heckling trad cats sometimes from a Protestant perspective, but for the most part, it's not really like it, the the Americana thing. The, anyone who's kind of you know practicing some kind of traditional Christianity and is on kind of on board with supporting like the, the core American demographic is pretty much united now. But that's something that's changed. We talk about how much to stay the same. That's something that feels distinctly different about. New Orleans in the 60s versus modern uh yeah sort of well right? yeah I, at the risk of stepping out on a limb here I would say that the distinction now is probably more between not so much uh the cath the like humanist Catholics and the nativist Protestants it's more a distinction between the kind of it depends on who you're asking but humanist Christians and uh, more uh, based or, um, you know, uh, nationalistic nation or I don't know. Well, well F, yeah. F no net wig nats of a sort. Of a sort. Well, yeah, again, this is not strictly Confederacy events this talk. I just do think it is interesting, you know, to the degree to which Catholics and native nativists have have reconciled i mean you could even look at this in a very concrete way the kkk used to uh condemn catholicism and now it doesn't not that yeah. i think you know the kkk is not an organization um that i and obviously in any way support i also think even even from like a, a white nationalist perspective i think it's kind of a fed infested you know it, it's not but but it, it just it, it is worth pointing out that the kkk used to target catholics no longer does there's been a degree of i think rec not reconciliation between the mainstream catholic church and nativists but you know uh so, some degree where it's it's it, there's a there's a, a, a an alliance there between um certain nativists and certain very right-wing catholics and you see people obviously pat buchanan who's you know the most one of the most he would many people would describe him as a nativist and, and one of the yeah. most mainstream is Catholic and, uh, and even from, you know, Fuentes and, and whatnot, you know, it's, there's been in the United States, there's been um, a kind of reconciliation between certain no, elements. No, that's true. That's I do true. think there's certain tensions that but are I, kind of just below the surface though. I mean, that said, like, yeah, you, I mean, Fuentes is an interesting case, right? Because he's said stuff that is like, very uh more hbd pilled shall we say 
Whereas he also was trying to lead a kind of like, in a way, big tent American Christian movement. And so I think like the kind of like, um, more um, uh, wig natty version of uh, Fuentes. That is kind of like the, the tension that we see on the right now. We see a kind of tension between uh, Christians who have more of a big tent approach to, you know, the political project and, um, you know, people who have uh, more of a kind of, some would say more realistic uh, approach, but uh, nevertheless, a more narrow approach to like, you know, um, our political agenda. Right. Yeah. So, one, one peculiarity of uh, Ignatius's perspective as a monarchist, as a traditional, as a sort of a, as a trad Catholic, but more specifically as a trad monarchist, is that uh, there's a notable section which to me rang true to warnings that you hear from certain people in our corner about kind of uh, more out there, more ostensibly stuffy or just sort of overly traditionalistic outlooks that you hear you hear warnings from certain people in our corner that they can sort of be subverted or made to look like a joke um, or even used to siphon off uh, more genuinely sort of right-wing uh, social movements. Uh, and it's exemplified in the Confederacy of Dunces by this character of Myrna Minkoff um, suggests that, so she, she and, to give some background, she and Ignatius are friends from college uh, and their worldviews are diametrically different, but they've always had this ongoing dialogue. She is a Freudian modernist uh, with a, actually it's a little bit similar to some of the stuff I parody in my novel, to be honest. Um, just kind of a Freudian perspective that the solution to everything is more and better sex, basically. <laughs> and of course, Ignatius is a, some kind of reactionary as we discussed, but she suggests in one letter, and again, in a way that to me rang interestingly, uh, echoed certain things I hear um, online uh, that she would support like she she referenced like a, she asked Ignatius how his project to start a monarchist party in the United States is going and suggests that she would support such a venture uh, on the grounds that it would it would siphon off uh, people and resources from any more genuine fascistic movement in the United States um, which was another moment in the book that felt kind of hilariously on the nose uh, in a way that I wouldn't think of in the 60s. Uh, but, but yeah, you do hear people like Bap kind of talk about how trad Catholicism kind of has this uh, pitfall that it yeah. can kind of be subverted. But I mean, he's usually going after like the Rod Drehers and the kind of Remulers of the world who they're not subverting it for left-wing purposes per se, but there is this notion of sort of... Well, so... You know, Right. If, if you're a, uh, you know, a, a Christian humanist and you believe in the, the dignity of all people, then, yeah, you are kind of open to subversion in a sense, because, um, you know, people from both sides can kind of claim you and they can be like, like, if anything, any sort of civic nationalism relies upon that philosophical framework. That's the only way civic nationalism works. So, and the civic nationalism is a right one thing. It's Michael Anton's thing. It's not just his thing, but like right. that is, um, you know, Christian humanism is essentially the the, the Christianity of uh, arguably of the founders. 
is uh, that is what the bright bases its project on the civic nationalist right but like also the left can claim that like oh dignity for all people well like well okay maybe part of dignity for all people is uh ensuring that equity exists between all people right oh yeah and, and of course there's an extension and you know and so this, yeah. this is a malleable philosophy unfortunately which you know you you it's incumbent upon the Ignatiuses of the world to kind of set the boundaries and the parameters for, you know, Absolutely. where their uh, philosophy, it's, well, the water's edge. Right. Well, it's philosophically malleable is one issue. The other issue is aesthetic, which is that if you can get your opponent looking like a dorky monarchist who's using reactionary wouldn't the world be better if there was a king to sort things out? If you can make your enemy look like that, you've kind of already won. And I think that's why people like Bap, you know, go for the handsome Friday aesthetics over, uh, you know, the raw the Dreher aesthetics, because on some level, if, you know, that's very good. As I think some of us a little bit subconscious, almost uh, not to sound too much like a Freudian myself, but I think on some level, the left knows that if everyone looks like, Rod Dreher, well, then you don't have much to worry about because, yeah, you know, it's just not threatening. And, you know, you can kind of pay it lip service like, oh, that would be nice to live in a, a more traditional community. Uh, that's not going to win. You, you could you could have a Benedict option to, to name specifically Rod Dreher's perspective and kind of have a little cordoned off section of society that you know in theory is going to be less touched by progressivism but you're not going to be winning any hearts and minds uh you know maybe some but not not many you're not gonna be winning any culture wars of that so and then uh, um ignatius riley is kind of like a big bloated even more ridiculous version of roger so if you can get your enemy looking like that that's even better i'm not even necessarily saying that's what the myrna minkoff character in the novel is even thinking but i do think there's a there's an element of that in which I about the extent to which perspectives like this and overly intellectual conservative and traditionalistic perspectives can be kind of subverted away from, you know, whether yeah. it's nativism or, or, or perhaps baptism or something. Um, or, or just subverted away just from, from yeah. you know, their um, conservative goals. So yeah, like, oh, totally. Yeah. Like obviously Ignatius, even if he's a, a humanist, he doesn't, that doesn't mean he wants uh, like equity, you know, that that was a the thing then, but that doesn't mean that he wants that. That doesn't mean that he wants free sex and free love. He, you know, actually certainly, not certainly that, yeah. does not want that. So like he has certain conservative principles that the uh, murder Minkoffs of the world uh, wish to uh, subvert. Yeah, to use him to break the nativist movement, and um, and then like, well, what of his, what of Ignatius's values after that? And so this yeah. is kind of a case for you know, right? This is a case for not punching right. Definitely, um, but I think we can probably move on to the next topic here. One question that I had while reading it is, um, so I think we mentioned this, but. John Kennedy Tool did unfortunately kill himself probably what like 10 years before this novel even saw the light of day. More, more than 10. He killed more himself than 10 in 69. 
And I guess the novel yeah. was published in 81. Right. So okay. Yeah. So it's 11 years. Yeah. Dang. And I know you're going to get more into his story. Or no, that's 12 uh, on, years. I'm terrible. Yeah, I guess that. so. No, it's okay. <laughs> uh, I guess we get more into his story with, with Brad and Kevin, but uh, basically his mother kind of helped get the novel across the desk of Walker that's Percy, right. who then totally had a hand in, um, and getting it published, and there is kind of, I guess, a semi-happier, bittersweet ending to this, which is that it won a Pulitzer Prize, and that it is well-known. Um, oh, yeah. So it's not just, like, a fringe thing to read. It, it really achieved that success. But the question I had was, you know, is this kind of a black pill novel? And I think part and parcel of that question is to what extent is Ignatius Riley somewhat autobiographical of, of Tool? Uh, and we've done a little bit of digging and the answer would seem to be that he is a little bit autobiographical. And, you know, very, very hilarious character. It's black pill novel would make it sound dark. The novel is mostly very funny. A lot of people would say it's one of the funniest, it's one of the funniest novels I've ever read. Uh, so it's not dark, but if you're looking at someone who ended up killing himself and you have this character who well, really can't get ahead in life and is kind of living this homebound, um, you know, there's an overbearing mother character, which we haven't even talked about. Um, and he obviously just isn't, you know, he's not someone, he's a low status individual. Yeah. Um, you do got to wonder if in the end, Tool, you know, saw himself as being a little bit like Riley and in the end, maybe it wasn't so funny for him. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there's much to that. I think that's probably largely true. I would draw a distinction between he tool led a black pill life clearly. Yeah, no doubt. He, uh, no he, doubt. he killed himself. So that's, you know, proof is in the pudding, but I, I wouldn't call it a black pill novel. Right. It's like, it's not only is it funny, but it, um, it ends on a, a kind of hopeful note and it does. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's kind of like he is, you know, frankly, you know, he's escaping with Myrna from the clutches of his mother and the psychiatric, you know, wards uh, who are chasing after him and put him in, you know, um, in a psychiatric unit. Yeah. And um, he's like, he's like on the run with this, you know, woman who he supposedly, you know, uh, philosophically, some, philosophically some abhors, yeah. but he like, he's obviously attracted to her. And he, it's kind of like, you know, it's uh, he's you know, about to embark on some like, you know, next chapter, some horny adventure, perhaps. Perhaps. And, yeah. um, you know, maybe that scares him, uh, but, uh, you know, maybe it also excites him. And um, it's I, I think it definitely ends on an uplifting note. Now, um, Tool led a black belt life. He, you know, like he. Yeah. He, um, you know, I, I don't know what his, you know, early life was exactly like, but um, he went to uh, Tulane, New Orleans, then Columbia, then um, he had a commission, he was drafted into the army, he, mm -hmm. um, he taught English in the army, I don't know how that fucking worked, yeah. but he, uh, he taught English in the army, uh, and he uh he wound up teaching in some you know local colleges in louisiana i think living with his mother and like he he wrote this novel which he you know clearly was very proud of and uh he couldn't get it published anywhere and um 
uh, had, you know, this overbearing mother and um, supposedly on the day that he killed himself, they had had some type of fight or falling out. Oh no. And well, obviously so, and th- there is something redeemable with the mother and that she ended up getting his novel published. Absolutely. Not to speak ill of her, but yeah, obviously that's it. That, no one, no guy wants to live with his mom past like no. 22. Um, I, well, that's kind of like the tragic, the super tragic element yeah. of this. She perhaps being goaded on by guilt of her son killing himself. She, you know, she's an older woman of probably more conservative uh, sensibilities than her son, who who also had conservative sensibilities. But he was, you know, a he's a literature professor, a young man. Like I'm, I'm sure that uh, Mama uh, Tool looked at this novel and was like, "This filth," you know, whatever. But regardless, she believed in her son so much and wanted to honor his memory that she chased down Walker Percy, who is just like, you know, who's a famous, you know, uh, writer and editor. Right. And he's yeah. just like he, this crazy old lady chased him down. And it's just like, you got to read this, you know, novel that in, he had been tool had been in touch with Walker Percy somewhat, but uh, like not, not so much so that like it was an open invitation. So she had to really chase him down. She gave him this novel and um, Percy said he was like excited to read the first page and, you know, recognize right. immediately that it's shit and throw it out. But he said he read, he, he started, yeah, yeah, he started the, the first intro. page and yeah. he's just like, fuck, it's good. I got to read the whole thing. And he did. And, uh, you know, it, it got published and won the Pulitzer. And um, he, um, so yeah, he, he never lived to see his triumph. He did live a black pilled life. And yeah. Um, yeah, he, Ignatius probably was based largely on himself. Yeah. I mean, uh, Tool obviously had a degree. It was obviously not as buffoonish and ridiculous as Riley, but, and had more, you know, Riley, uh, Riley never actually successfully taught at a college. He was an undergraduate. And then there's a scene. Yeah. One of the first things mentioned that he tried to, I think he tried to go and get a position at some, college upstate and it, it doesn't go well and it gets his jacket stolen I was uh, obviously tool had a degree more success than that he wasn't he was a literary professor but in the end it's hard not to imagine that he didn't feel like something of a failure especially not being able to get his novel published and certainly something of a, an outsider no doubt and I mean, we talk about the, the catholic thing but that's probably wasn't even really it I mean I think this is probably just you know I I, I would have to research more on tool to say what exactly he had going on, but I'm sure he had his issues as many of us do, you know, um, yeah. perhaps sexually, perhaps psychologically, not to sound like Myrna, <laughs> but you know, he I mean, undoubtedly, he felt like an outsider in the way that Riley uh, was, is in the novel. And, and undoubtedly, you know, I'm sure Tool had his own, if not reactionary, then sort of conservative standpoint on what was wrong with modernity and, and how, and how, you know, maybe things could be better, but also clearly he was able to laugh at himself for that and realize the extent to which perspectives like that are often, often a cope. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in that sense, uh, you know, it's hard not to imagine Riley wasn't based off of him. And there, there's certain autobiographical details. Now you were saying from the light research that you did that there's the notion that Riley based, sorry, that tool based Riley off of 
someone so or some he had a colleague in the english department at one of these colleges and it's believed that riley was based somewhat on this colleague who was slovenly who maybe was prone to the sort of bombastic rhetoric that riley would use but i mean the life circumstances of uh of tool and riley are similar and crucially uh tool himself um he was a tamale vendor and yeah. uh, if you read confederacy of dunces you would know that ignatius j riley was a hot dog vendor yeah and after the pants factory didn't work yeah uh, he's, so a, he's a hot dog vendor for more of the novel just just to be clear <laughs> yeah. i i don't know to what extent uh our listeners are denizens of big cities but like if you have a cart you're pushing around the city selling hot dogs you are like pretty low on the totem pole of dudes mm-hmm. who are like, you know, doing well in any sort of metropolitan yeah. area. And that was apparently especially the case in um, in New Orleans in the 60s, because when yeah. her, his mother found out he was a hot dog vendor, she was like <laughs> crying and like beside herself because essentially yeah. being a hot dog vendor was like being a hobo. She's like, right. you're well, going to be one of those hobo men. And it's, <laughs> I mean, this is yet just, another way you know, that the novel I'm, is prescient, though, and relatable. I mean, thankfully, I'm not necessarily in this vision, but a lot of people kind of in our corner and then the dissident right are, are basically high IQ, in many cases, highly educated or at least um, sort of autodidact, really smart people who like for due to their views or due to other maybe some, you know, maybe there's even some autism in some case, you know, just can't really make it as well in mainstream society. And so end up with jobs that are not much better than being a hot dog vendor. They end up living at home. They live with their parents. I mean, these are real things. And and Ignatius Riley is a, is a prototypical version of that. Uh, And it's another way in which he's a relatable character, I think for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, I, in, um, in my novel, I mean, I, I hesitate to say this because the uh, protagonist of Nutcranker, Spencer, Spencer Grunhauer, is uh, a kind of uh, not as gross as Ignatius J. Riley, but just a very supercilious, uh, jerky kind of guy. And, uh, you know, a bit of an incel, a bit of mm-hmm. a, um, you know, kind of... Um, arrogant whatever uh, like it has has a lot of the ignatius in him and uh, of course is also very unhinged but like yeah you do you know you you channel you know emotions that that are within you to create these characters and so i i would you know have to say that uh spencer is in, in some sense a fun house or grotesque version of myself Right. Yeah. And, no, no, for sure. Yeah. And um, like, I, I would assume the same is true for um, was true for tool. He kind yeah. of like, he thought kind of like, well, what would be the kind of like craziest, most grotesque version of who I could be. And yeah. he, he wrote that character. And I think so. it's like, I, I think this is something that a lot of writers do. And like, you kind of like, because you always in the back of your mind you're like well what if um here plus like 
50 notches to the right of not politically, but like 50 notches to the right of like down the social totem pole or down the crazy. Yeah, exactly. Pole. And you just, you know, you kind of like inhabit that, like, uh, where, but for the grace of God, go I, uh, character that you create. Oh yeah. I think Ignatius Riley is pretty clearly that a little bit, uh, related to that, uh, uh pivoting slightly, I find I think Myrna Minkoff is probably based on a real person too. I would maybe think so. several, yeah. but the, again, the stereotype is so on the nose, and and the, this, her point of view, while not being that of Ignatius, and I, I'm sure not being that of Tool, is so specific and fleshed out that I find it hard to believe that he wasn't directly satirizing. If you know, maybe a group of people, but more likely, I think one person who perhaps he was also romantically interested in as as uh you know some of us are, are also have that affliction perhaps of kind of uh being interested in uh someone who is politically abhorrent to us shall we say I, um i I, a, I will neither confirm nor deny matt ah, uh, yeah no absolutely i mean it's, i it's mean my, the, big, the female uh, protagonist of nutcranker is an amalgam of people no one in particular but uh yeah no i, I did do my reporting absolutely you know it's it's such a, a source of humor and memes on our side to kind of joke about you know being being attracted to some of these you know e-girls I, I geo wrote about this on with regard to confederacy dunces as well how it's like you know you could waste spill a lot of ink sort of talking about how how bad you know modern females are or something and at the end of the day you know <laughs> it's still who you're attracted to in, in a lot of cases yeah. Um, similar with the the movie, and Gio also wrote about this. Similar with like the movie thing. One of one of Ignatius's um, defining characteristics, or one of the, the things we see him do multiple times, is go to the movies to basically see how bad they are, quote unquote. And like, how many of us online, or how many posters do the exact same thing? You know, it's time to time to drag another modern cultural thing sort of through the mud. But obviously, you also kind of enjoy it on some level. Is this this double thing happens where it's you're criticizing modernity but you're also on twitter and you're kind of just completely immersed in the water of modernity at the same time um ignatius is also kind of an example of that um culturally and perhaps sexually too absolutely absolutely it um ignatius is i, I not to change topics too much but I that's think okay yeah through line here Ignatius's sexuality is something that we have discussed in the notes a little bit. Yeah, and, and um, I'm not interesting. You'll go on, Matt. It's a conundrum. I mean, I'm not uh, Myrna Minkoff myself. I don't think he's gay. I mean, I'm sure there's people who've read, you know, English professory types who've read this and like, oh, he's a repressed homosexual, you know. But I, I don't think that at all. I think he's pretty clearly heterosexual, but also like a very damaged and sort of, in some sense, repressed heterosexual right yeah um i mean the, the the first thing and this is again like I, i'm not too precious that like obviously i know that people wrote and thought and talked about this in their early 60s but nevertheless it's not every day that you open a book that was written in the 60s and you 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 find a character masturbating to a weird cryptic memory of his dog and that is something that we see ignatius doing like chapter three exactly um, and i mean yeah. that's like a very like weird thing to do obviously like i i don't think that um 
I don't think that Tool intended uh, us to take away from that that um, no, that no. Uh, Ignatius is dog pilled. Ignatius huh. is not dog pilled. He um, he's just he's very repressed. Very yeah, he's a, but not a repressed homosexual. I no, think no, he's just, yeah, like, he's just sexually repressed. Sexually repressed. Like yeah, he yeah, he, the way he describes Myrna and her kind of oversexed personality, he's like disgusted but titillated, and like so much so, I think that he like though uh, when masturbating, he would you know normally like a normal human being would uh, think of uh, Myrna. Or think of you know some some woman who turns him mm-hmm. on, he he's like is that's like so um, filthy to him that he thinks of uh, something that is I, you know uh, precious and uh, you know good, which is yeah. his dog, and that that's like I think it is actually in a weird way like a kind of uh, sweet moment. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I've taught I've had Frank in weird conversations with certain individuals like about you know their sexuality and it's like yeah you you do get people who are kind of like repressed to end up kind of sexually glomming not in a fetishistic way but rather like they have this weird sexual association with with things like you know disneyland or something i don't know i've, I've had I've, I've known a lot of weird people in my life i guess but again not not uh, weird like fetishistic but like it, it is a real thing in short it's not just some weird baloney that's made to look like Ignatius look like a freak. Like there are these people out there who, for whatever reason, they're they're kind of more repressed or you know autistic or maybe even maybe even they nowadays actually just say like I'm asexual. Yeah. Uh, who who have this kind of weird bottled up thing? Uh, I I don't say that to like to like bring up a weird topic. Just like I you know that that basically that's real in a funny way. Myrna Minkoff you know is a ridiculous character, but like she's probably not entirely wrong. <laughs> that uh ignatius is is sexually oh yeah no she i think she's right there i mean and, that's, and, and um, that ending i mean do they go off and fuck like is that does it all end up okay i, I don't know <laughs> i don't know either but i i think that um i think tool wants us to think so certainly think it's not as simple us... as ignatius is morally righteous and myrna is degenerate uh the the answer is somewhere in between like it's somewhere between yes myrna is kind of an outsider herself and is ridiculous herself you know ignatius is an outsider and has his own ridiculous perspective but somewhere in the middle perhaps i don't think this is this is too reductive but somewhere in the middle uh is like a normal person maybe no no exactly like he is ignatius is too sexually repressed and myrna is too sexually expressive and somewhere, you know, in between, you know, maybe they will find harmony. And it, it definitely, the end is suggestive of, um, of that happening because like, they're like speeding away in a car together. And what's more romantic than that to be in like a car, like running away from, you know, your problems, possibly even from like, you know, uh orderlies from the loony bin who were chasing yeah. after you no, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you know it, it was a you know it was a romantic what, what ending this, it is a romantic ending. one of the sources of um 
again, that goes back to memes you see, like uh, even just something, this is a little bit less on the nose as an opposite, but like, I don't even want to, it's a little crass, but you know, like the, the, the sort of big broody Latina meme and things like that. And like, uh, you know, uh, people that are like on frog Twitter getting like women, women of color, <laughs> girlfriends and stuff <laughs> there is an element at the end of the day you know opposites do attract often well and, okay but i mean like yeah. there's a little bit of a difference there in that like i think on frog twitter it's more like racial opposites but ideologically simpatico that's Here, more typical yeah. like, even though you get that a little bit even i'm trying to think of a good example it's a little it's a little less of a common meme than the other thing i mentioned but even a little bit like oh uh you know even like sexualizing aoc a little okay bit. sure I, there's yeah. an l you know there's an element of like no no God, she, her, her her views are abhorrent but like this and we've talked about yeah, this too no, no. No. uh i think there's something of that to to ignatius and yeah uh, and yeah I, no i think he like thing. wants yeah. to punish her for her views sexually. something like that and, and also like if we if we want to be freudian or, or I guess anti-Freudian or like, I don't know, Freudian and anti-Freudian. Maybe it's like, uh, maybe it's the same thing. I don't know. He clearly, Ignatius is going to want someone who's nothing like his mother because his mother yeah. is like the source of all his problems. So yeah, that is Freudian. Um, and, you know, Myrna is is kind of an opposite in that sense. I think a lot of uh, dudes can end up relating to that in some way. Yeah. And <laughs> as we mentioned on the pod with Geo left-wing women often are attracted to right-wing men if not like actually you know men who are right-wing but uh men who say uh, act right-wing in the bedroom because of yeah. their political <laughs> orientations yeah. left-wing yeah. women my experience has been they they want the the most violent sex they want mm -hmm. the most um rough and like because i mean when you have uh, a sort of um uh when you kind of fetishize um equality well then like the opposite becomes very hot oh absolutely absolutely so i mean I think this... that, that's what goes on with a lot of left-wing women that's why they are attracted to right-wing men maybe not the only reason but sexually certainly the idea that right-wing men you know, in this case, Ignatius is not exactly a Christian Grey. I, I don't think he's, you know, really equipped to give uh, Myrna what she needs. But um, you know, there. Yeah, but there's something. There's some. That. There's some tension. You know, even just dialectically between them, there's some tension that keeps the intrigue. And yeah, it's just this undercurrent that underlies the whole novel, like the kind of uh, tension between those worldviews, the possible magnetism between those two worldviews again both of them are sort of outsiders um again it's, it's something that feels very relevant to dynamics that go on today but if you know from a time period that you don't associate it with yeah um yeah no definitely uh yeah Maybe. There is that sense that they're both uh that they're both kind of outsiders which I think is important what were you gonna say I was going to say, maybe this is a good point to talk about uh, my experience writing Nutcranker. Uh, yeah, no, I was, I was going to ask you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go on. Sorry. Yeah. How, um, see, I, I wrote a novel uh, that is uh, very, you know, similar, you know, to um, Dunce's. And the interesting thing is I didn't realize that until I was about halfway or like more than 
halfway done with it. And it, it was kind of, um, you know, weird because I picked up Dunces and I was like reading through it and I'm like, hey, this sounds a lot like the uh, voice that I pioneered in, in my novel. <laughs> and yeah. it's, I mean, I will say this was, you know, to the extent anything is independently generated, it, it was. But I mean, I, I guess Ignatius J. Riley and Confederacy of Dunces burrowed into my subconscious because it happens. Like, it absolutely happens, you yeah. know. Um, I was I was channeling the spirit of Duel, channeling the spirit of Ignatius J. Riley into uh, Spencer Grunhauer and into Nutcranker. And uh, that's why I like to think of this book as the spiritual and uh, artistic heir of uh, a confederacy of dunces. You know, absolutely. And as I was saying, one of the things I was struck by reading it, I knew that the book, well, again, I guess it was kind of an after the fact influence in a weird way, but nevertheless, I knew that there was this um, through line between the two, but um, it's that, you know, reading it, I was really struck like this is the same novel (laughs) not exactly the same not exactly not exactly the same same, but this is any lawyers listening not exactly (laughs) the same (laughs) um what uh what this novel did in its time is what nutcranker you know could do in its time uh the, the the dramatic irony again that we've talked about where it's a character who doesn't realize how buffoonish their own views are uh is the same and and just the the story is the same do you know what i mean again again not in a not in a uh plot stealing way at all the plot's actually entirely different and the setting's entirely different but the 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 source of of plot i mean i guess one different i guess you know I, you know not to split hairs confederacy dunces has i guess slightly more characters and is longer than nutcracker so it's, it's like yeah. the ignatius riley story is the same as the spencer Grunhauer story. but these are similar characters they are educated they find themselves kind of overly educated for the positions they're in and at odds with their society. And they, 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 both of them have, but well, I guess really significantly, both of them have like a long-term sort of writing project where they lay out everything that's wrong with modernity. Yeah. Um, that that's sort of central to both of them. And they kind of glom to that in the way, again, in the way that many of us do in the way that perhaps we're doing now with this podcast, you know, we have a project online that's going to, you know, revolutionize us. yeah so many of us have guys. this um but but yeah basically the in confederacy of dunces and in nutcranker both it's it's the misadventures of that same basic type of character and the way that their worldview and their quest to find uh you know money and 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 career and and love uh the 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 strange corners that leads them down it is the same I mean, wouldn't you, is that the same? Oh, no, it's, it's more than <laughs> yeah. fair. And I, I love the comparison. And yeah, I think of this as kind of like, they're both picaresque tales. And uh, this is kind of like a, a modern day version because the modern day, you know, Ignatius J. Riley is, um, he's living in, um, well, in Brooklyn. And yeah. uh, he's shitposting. And he's like, you know, working at an NGO and, you know, secretly shit posting. <laughs> and yeah. um, it's, you know, it, it bears a lot of similarities, 
and um, also, uh, you know, key differences. And, you know, some of those differences are um, I kind of get to use this character of um, Ignatius Spencer, you know, I'm not going to say they're entirely interchangeable, but uh, somewhat to explore current politics. So, for instance, Spencer goes to the Women's March. You can imagine right. how that went. You, you could go, imagine Ignatius going to the Women's March if, if he was alive today, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a very similar look, you know? Yeah. The, the source of humor is the same. Yeah. He, uh, he spirals out of control, Spencer, in a way that uh, Ignatius, you know, thankfully did not. But... Um, <laughs> regardless the uh, the ending i think to both novels is uh well also is, similar yeah dunce's is uh you know clearly romantic and hopeful and i'm not going to say that the ending to nutcranker is quite as romantic as the ending of dunce's and in a way also not quite as hopeful it's maybe you know maybe it's a bit of a black pill ending but it's also kind of like a weirdly amalgam of hope and black pill it's yeah I, it's uh readers will have to read it but it's it's not entirely dissimilar to the ending of confederacy Dunces. yeah yeah it's uh <laughs> in, in some ways it reminds me of the ending of in the company of men oh right yeah of course yeah <laughs> Another, uh, as discussed on previous new right episode what did we even call that one uh the, mas- the art of the masculine urge to podcast yes the masculine Another, urge to podcast yes um, was... should, that's a kind of a deeper cut you know i don't know if that one got as many listeners so if you're a newer listener which by the way we really appreciate the i think i think we have got a lot of new listeners of the yeah. past like two months so appreciate all of you yeah uh, go no, back and check one out and check, check out that episode i uh, sorry check out that movie in the company of men it's a really underrated movie uh but not to get too it's on crackle i believe for free but not to get too off track um i think that not only is a confederacy does this similar to nutcranker i think there is a white well you know gray pill because tool did often <laughs> which is not what we hope any of any of people in our sphere will ever which is not what we hope do. dan does <laughs> which is not what we hope dan well dan you know dan didn't need his mother to write to the modern day walker person because we had matt forney and tara exactly I, <laughs> I, I hooked myself up with forney so i, I yeah. didn't, didn't my mom had nothing to do with that let me uh let me put that yeah. front for <laughs> your mom didn't need to say i guess peter teal would be like walker <laughs> no i don't know but um yeah no so it's a great pill because tool didn't really meet a happy end but there is you know it's it's i have to say it's a na- the the type of literature that we hope is out there that we try and cultivate on this podcast that you know we want a platform that we want to write uh the whole notion is that it's you know this outside basically outsider literature from a not strictly from a right of center perspective, but, you know, from, from the kind of perspective that you can imagine coming from an Ignatius Riley type or Kennedy tool type, you know, um, it's, it's a type of literature we hope is out there and that we believe is out there that we found to some extent. And it's the, the, the hope is to bring it to, to, a, to a bigger audience. Um, and that basically is what happened with John Kennedy tool via his mother and Walker Percy, ultimately, you know, tragically because he wasn't around to see it. Oh, winning the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, not that I really give a shit about something like the Pulitzer Prize. I, no, but it's still know, important. But it's still it's still important. And um, I mean, I I think for that reason, 
we talk about Confederacy of Dunces as kind of like a proto sort of prescient of uh, predicting of sort of frog Twitter type of novel. But in a lot of ways, it's like we could view it as like a prototypical novel of the kind of literature we're, we're looking, you know, I guess the kind of outsider literature with significant social value um, and significant political ramifications and insights that is exactly um, yeah. like what, what New Right is all about. So that's why I think it's really fitting that we do this episode, uh, for our first, one of our first ever actually, uh, although we should do more uh, episodes to get dedicated to like a very specific book. Absolutely. Um, you know, and it's it's a fitting example. Yeah. One thing I want to add is that not only did Confederacy of Dunces foreshadow the current political moment, but, um, you know, quite uh, unwittingly, um, John Kennedy Tool's life foreshadowed the current political moment and the, the lives of uh, our, our, our lit bro frogs today. Yeah. I, I think on an earlier pod, uh, I was described as a, not our pod, but uh, in, you know, reaction to an earlier pod, a, a 4chan lit bro. And like that kind of, um, we, Wait, we are in, <laughs> go on, sorry. We, we are in a place where, um, where, you know, where, you know, white male writers writing the type of stuff we write we're outsiders and we can't get our stuff published. And, you know, for, for whatever reason, Tool, though the, the you know, letters in, in his day were dominated by straight white men. So it's kind of curious that he had all these issues, but regardless- He's still an outsider. He, he was an but, outsider yeah. and, you know, he, and being an outsider back then was, you know, actually a lot harder because you didn't have Twitter, you didn't have new yeah. right, you didn't have, so you wind up killing yourself. But, oh, no. uh, but yeah, but, but no, today, like we're, we're outsiders, but, um, you know, we have each other, we have right. Twitter, yeah. we, you know, we have, uh, you know, you have new right, you have new right to listen yeah. to, and, you know, all sorts of other great pods, like, Art of Darkness, like uh, the Prudentialist has a great stream. Oh yeah, like, I mean um, it's a whole Astral, network of people Bath, and publishers. You know, Caribbean yeah. Rhythms. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, every, everything out there. Like I, we're not going to run through the whole litany of all of them because inevitably we'll forget some and people pissed off at but, us. But you know, you know what's out there. And yeah, and it's out there. In short, yeah. We're we're all gonna make it in short. Um, I feel like it's like a PSA. It's like the they the, they put the end of the credits of Euphoria. You know, it's like if you if you're if you have a drug issue, call this number. But no, it's it really is. You know, there is a lot of hopeful stuff right. out there for for Just, for, uh, for, for outsider artists. And uh, Dan, is you, I don't know if you want to say. That. <laughs> I'll let. What were you gonna? No, you don't have to put this in. Oh well, no, what's what that? But you, I mean, we're deep in the episode. I feel like you could say it uh, without being too controversial. Did uh, all it all it takes is one artist who's had enough to change the world. <laughs> you don't have to put that in. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I had a, a dream the the other day. Uh, we we didn't. I didn't tweet this one, but I had a line from a dream that I woke up with. Sometimes I wake up just remembering like a, a line. It's weird. That's the way I. Oh yeah, no, I have it. Too. And so I, I woke up remembering a line that was something to the effect of um, 
the um, the politicians can't make the changes uh, that we need. Only an artist who's finally had enough can do it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little suggestive to tweet, but I mean, <laughs> any suggestive historical precedents, I think there there is something to that. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we artists have had enough and yeah. we're, we're going to change the politics in a way that is, uh, you know, totally, um, you know, based and cool. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you, you sent that to me and obviously, you know, it's still a little controversial to tweet, but I immediately actually thought of uh, Confederacy of Dunces and, uh, you know, like um, Ignatius doesn't change the world. He doesn't even really change himself necessarily, but, you know, there is that that figure. And I think John Kennedy Tool himself was this. And I think we fancy ourselves this way to some extent. You know, someone with a unique and artistic way of looking at the world and, you know, whether, you know, it's maybe the world is beyond, you know, the ability for an individual to change it, but nevertheless, like that's kind of the torch that we carry is this, we're getting a little weepy here, but that's fine. Like uh, just the the, the notion that like that the, the ultimate, you know, is for as much of a buffoon as Ignatius Riley is, it's like, at the end of the day, he he is intelligent and he is sensitive and he's also ridiculous, but like he has this way of looking at the world and there's something, there is something to it. Like there is something to that outsider perspective that one has. Um, and absolutely, you know, most of us will never quote unquote change the world or, or, or even necessarily do much. We have to be kind of reality pilled on that. But at the same time, there is something redemptive and kind of Holding to holding to our, our perspectives and, and giving them artistic form. Uh, it's something that keeps me going for sure. Change will come from the shit poster who has finally had enough. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on that note, I think we can wrap up, put a put a dunce cap on this one. <laughs> We're dunced. <laughs>